Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are covering section 85, 86, and 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 85 is a portion of a letter that Joseph Smith is writing to W.W. Phelps, and it's dealing with the issue of his complaint that not everybody's living consecration, not everybody's following the rules. And so he writes a letter to Joseph asking his opinion of what should be done. And this is a portion of his response to W.W. Phelps. So that's kind of the historical context. This is all happening in 1832 in November. So things were kind of a mess in Jackson County, and this is Joseph writing to kind of clean up the mess. Now, not only does he have something to say about the leadership, but also about the people. And if you look in the middle of verse 7, there's going to be a mighty and strong one who is going to put, arrange by lot the inheritances. So my reading of this is, hey, it could be you, Edward Partridge, since you were called, or it could be somebody who replaces you. Verse 8 says, that man who was called of God and appointed that putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God shall fall by the shaft of death. Edward Partridge was kind of pushing back against some of the direction from Ohio. And so to me, this is just my reading, but I look at it as it could be Edward Partridge. It could be his replacement. It's a difficult principle because we value everyone. Everyone matters, but at the same time, things will move forward. And so if you fall out of favor, if you rebel, The work has to proceed. Yeah. In verse 10 of section 42, the Lord says, I say unto you that my servant Edward Partridge shall stand in the office whereunto I have appointed him, and it shall come to pass that if he transgress, another shall be appointed in his stead, even so, amen. So he's already been told, hey, if you don't do your job, I'll send someone else, and that's kind of what we're getting here in section 85 is, someone needs to do this, and if it's not you, I'll send someone else to do it. I'll send a mighty and strong one. But that phrase has been used by apostates of the church from the very beginning to claim that they are the mighty and strong one that has been sent to fix the church. Be very careful if you ever hear anyone claiming that they are the fulfillment of this prophecy. The first presidency dealt with that, debunked that whole idea. The reference of the mighty and strong one was to Edward Partridge. If you're interested in the commentary the first presidency made, it's in our show notes. From 1905, it's a statement the first presidency put out under Joseph F. Smith's presidency, kind of saying, no, the mighty and strong one didn't need to come because Edward Partridge repented and did the job that he was assigned. So, case solved. So, to nerd out just really quick, though, on the mighty and strong verse, what I love is the idea that this individual has power in his hand, he's clothed with light, he has a scepter, he's mighty and strong, his bowels are full of the fountain of truth, and he sets things in order. What a cool description of Jesus. What a cool description of like the cosmic king in the Old Testament. This is a perfect messianic passage that the saints are going to have their names written in this in this book that has the inheritance of the saints and it's the book of the law of God and there's an individual with a scepter and all of these things. It's a beautiful image. And I think big picture 
that's Jesus, but that could also be anyone who is, you know, from an eternal perspective, I'm thinking cosmically, I'm thinking bigger than this mortal experience. But if you think about all the promises we get that the Lord gives us, it's a really cool image of the kingdom of God. And it should describe everyone who professes to be a representative of Jesus. We should act this way, all of us. It's really kind of a cool verse, but I'm with you, Bryce, where like people have twisted it and said, well, I'm the guy, follow me. And I'm like, no, that's not what it's saying. So I appreciate you referencing the first presidency. Um, I don't think in a gospel doctrine class, you're going to have really have to go down there, but to just be aware that the first presidency has addressed what people are saying about that verse. But a couple things you could address in a gospel doctrine class, or you could address with your families this weekend come fall me. One is in verse 8, this concept of steadying the ark. Don't make the same mistake that Uzzah makes here, and that is assume wrongdoing when there isn't wrongdoing. The Lord would not have let the ark fall. Bryce, I just got to say this. I was talking about the ark, and I had several students who didn't know what it was. They, they raised their hand. They said, Brother Day, we don't know what you're talking about. And then there was one of their parents was in the room and said, haven't you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? And I did a poll And most of my students, these are teenagers, didn't know what I was talking about. And I realized right then, because to me, I was a kid when that movie came out, and that got me to read the Bible, because I was like, what is this thing? I'd never heard of this before. And so for me, I credit Steven Spielberg with really getting me interested in biblical studies and reading about what is this thing called the Ark. So if you're talking to your kids, and you just start talking about the Ark, like you think they know what it is, they may not know what you're talking about. Yeah. The reference here is about a story as the ark was being moved from one place to another, as it goes over a threshing floor and it kind of jiggles a little bit, Uzzah, who is not one of the priests, puts forth his hand to steady the ark, to calm it down, to hold it sure, and he falls dead. That may be an extreme, but I think the point here is Uzzah made two main mistakes that we sometimes make that cause our spiritual downfall that cause us to fall spiritually. So number one, Uzzah's first mistake is that he assumes the ark's going to fall. He assumes wrongdoing when there isn't wrongdoing. God is not going to let the ark fall. He's not going to let the church fall. We should instead assume that church leaders have in their heart a righteous desire rather than assuming wrongdoing. Uzzah makes the assumption that the ark is going to fall. Secondly, he makes the assumption that he is the one that will fix it. There was someone whose job was to steady the ark, and it wasn't Uzzah. And so he bypasses the regular channels. We have in this church rules that say, here's the order of correcting someone. If someone has gone astray, here's the order. It's like sometimes church leaders overstep their bounds and say to themselves, I'll fix that problem when it's not theirs to fix. So don't make the same mistake that Uzzah makes here, and that is assume wrongdoing when there isn't wrongdoing. The Lord would not have let the ark fall. We assume wrongdoing in a bishop, in the prophet, in the Quorum of the Twelve, in any organization of the church. We assume wrongdoing rather than trusting that they're doing their best to make a right decision. 
and then we assume we're the ones that are going to fix the problem when we step forward rather than allowing the right person to fix the, the problem. There's always in the Lord's system a right person to fix whatever problem sneaks into the kingdom. Let that person fix the problem. David or McKay basically says that. He says it's dangerous to go out of our sphere and try unauthoritatively to direct the efforts of a brother. And then he cites the passage in, in Samuel. And he says that this individual seemed justified when the oxen stumbled and putting forth his hand to steady the symbol of the covenant, meaning the ark. We today think his punishment was very severe. Be that as it may, the incident conveys a lesson of life. Let us look around us and see how quickly men who attempt unauthoritatively to steady the ark die spiritually how quickly that happens. Their souls become embittered, their minds distorted, their judgment faulty, and their spirit depressed. Such is the pitiable condition of men who, neglecting their own responsibilities, spend their time in finding fault with others. Bryce, I think this is an extension of tension, this friction between Ohio and Missouri I just want to read this one thing that Joseph Smith says when he writes this letter. It's not canonized here in this revelation. Here's the quote that he writes to W.W. Phelps on the inadequacies of language. Joseph Smith writes, Deliver us in thy due time from the little narrow prison, almost as it were total darkness of paper, pen, and ink, in a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language. That, I think, is encapsulating Joseph's trouble, his toil, as it were, as a prophet. He has to take these visions that he has from God that are filled with light and then package them in a way where he can communicate among men and women in the messiness of history. And I see that, don't you, Bryce? That tension of trying to do the work of the Lord, but we're all messy. Yep. Another thing that gets a little bit messy, another thing if you're teaching your children or a Sunday school class and you want to dig into from section 85, do you remember back in our last podcast, we talked about the temple and the offering that the sons of Moses and the sons of Levi are going to make in the temple. Joseph's interpretation of that prophecy from section 128 was, therefore, let us as a church prepare a book that we can present to the Savior when he comes, containing all the record of all the dead and all the living and all the work that's been done. So it shouldn't surprise us that in section 85, there's this reference to getting your name in the book of the law of God. It mentions it four times in this section. Make sure your name is enrolled in the book of the law of God. And then in verse 3, the whole point here is you can't come in the back door. You can't sneak into the book of the law of God. And you can't just sit back and wait for someone else to do it. Get your name. Go in the front door and get your name written in this book. Verse 3, they were trying to gain an inheritance in Zion without fully living the law of consecration. And Joseph writes in this letter that that's not in harmony with the way God works. We don't do it that way. If you're going to get an inheritance, if you're going to get your name written in this book, you go in the front door and make sure you live consecration and everything else that's required of living in Zion. So the kind of the whole point of section 85 is don't be like the priests described in Ezra when they come back from Babylon and their genealogy has kind of been lost and they have no record 
that they are priesthood holders and they've lost kind of their inheritance because they've lost the records. The analogy is get your name in the book. You could have a wonderful discussion with your class or with your family. What are we doing to get our name written in the book of God's law? And how do we do that? How do we go in the front door? Because we're not going to leave this to chance. We're not going to leave it to the hands of someone else. Get your name written in that book. That's kind of section 85. So then that leads us to section 86. This is, to me, a big deal. And it's a wonderful way to see the Lord weave all of the scriptures of the restoration together, because he's going to quote a New Testament parable in the Doctrine and Covenants whose full answer is really presented prominently in the Book of Mormon. So I love section 86 to show how all of these scriptures weave together. So in section 86, he talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he starts basically saying, look, the field is the world, the sowers are the apostles. But then he puts a new twist on the parable that we read in the New Testament. He says that when the apostles fall to sleep— is the apostasy, that this parable from the very beginning was pointing to the restoration and the latter days, that the apostasy was when the tares got sown, that the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. So here we are, look at verse 4, in the last days, even now while the Lord is bringing to bring forth his word. So this parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, has fulfillment in our day. That after the apostasy, before the cleansing of the earth, we have a problem. Now, in section 86, he's going to point to the problem, but not point to a solution. He's going to hint at a solution. But I know the Lord well enough to know that he doesn't just hint at solutions. He gives us the answers, but he does it in the right place. So he points out that we've got a problem, and then it's up to us to go figure out how to solve that problem. So in verse 7 of section 86, he says, Therefore, let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. Now, we are the Latter-day Saints that come after the restoration has begun and before the cleansing. So we are right in that time period that the Lord is describing here, that one of the biggest problems of our day would be to not know the difference between wheat and tares. You can't tell what's poison, and you can't tell what's beneficial for you. And as I see it, there's four possibilities— Two are good and two are bad. The two good possibilities is I look at someone and I think I see wheat and they really are wheat. So I think you're a good positive influence and I let you into my life. And sure enough, you do bless my life and I was right. The other positive is I look at you and I see tear. You are my enemy. I will not let you into my life. I, I don't want you influencing me. I don't want you to be a part of my life. I saw tear and they were tear and I avoided a problem. But because we don't know, that poses two new options that are very dangerous. Option number one is I see wheat. I see friend and it's really a foe. Or I see foe and it's really a friend. Now, both of those are dangerous to me. If I see friend and let them into my life, 
I will be poisoned by the terror that they really are. If I see terror and I keep them out of my life, I miss out on the influence of the wheat that I could have had because I saw terror. Now, notice that the Lord does not say, oh, here's the solution. And may I suggest that's because he already gave us the solution in the Book of Mormon. With all my soul, I testify that that book was written for our day with us in mind, knowing the challenges that we would face. And if the Lord felt strongly enough to tell the Jews in the time of the New Testament that one of the biggest problems of our day would be to not know the difference between wheat and tare— I would expect a prominent place of the Book of Mormon to deal with this very problem. And sure enough, that's exactly what we find. Can you think of a story in the Book of Mormon where people thought someone was their friend who turned out to be an enemy, and they saw someone as an enemy who turned out to be their friend? This is the story of Noah and Abinadi and the blind people who mistook friend and foe. The Book of Mormon places that in such a prominent position that Noah was not their friend, and yet they thought he was. Can I just show you that the Lord has given us the answers here? If you'll turn to the Book of Mosiah, chapter 11, it begins to give us this description of King Noah. Now, in what world is this man their friend? Notice in verse 2, he was taking many wives and concubines. Now, this is not a large group of Nephites. This is a small group of Nephites who have left the major body and gone south to live among the Lamanites. That's the whole Zenith story. So, where is Noah getting these wives and concubines from? He's stealing our mothers, our sisters, our daughters. In what world is that man your friend? Verse 3, he's taxing one-fifth of everything they possessed. Look at verse 4 and look at verse 6. He's taxing us to support himself in his laziness. So we work so that he drinks. He's supporting a very worldly lifestyle. It's also kind of a pun on his name. Noach means to rest. There you and go. so the author's punning, he's riffing on, he builds these thrones that he can rest his body, he taxes people so he can rest. It's really full of a lot of cool puns. Verse 14, he places his heart upon riches, he spent his time in riotous living, and we're supporting that. Clearly this man is my enemy, but why might I see him as friend? Go back to verse 2, he did cause his people to commit sin. He let them think that sin was okay. Can you begin to see that maybe they might see him as friend and not foe? Verse 7, they were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king. And then verse 12, he builds a tower. He made them feel safe. Are there King Noahs in your life? who, despite the real clear evidence, are seen as friend because they allow sin, they condone sin, they make you feel safe, they flatter you with many flattering words. Are there Noahs who we've been deceived to think are friends? 
And now in verse 20 comes along Abinadi, and Abinadi says things that are not fun to hear. He tells them to repent. End of verse 20, except they repent, I will visit them in mine anger. That's not very nice. You're not my friend. Verse 21, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. They'll be brought into bondage. They'll be afflicted by the hand of their enemies. See, sometimes we think friends don't say that. Friends don't speak mean words to me. Go to verse 29 of Mosiah. The eyes of the people were blinded. We might call this Noah blindness. To be Noah blind is to look at a Noah and see friend. And you look at an Abinadi and you see foe. Now, how many teenagers out there look at mom and dad and see foe? Because my mom and dad, they say harsh things to me. And there's always someone, whether it's a person or a drug or some habit, who makes me feel safe in sin. And we begin to see the blinders come on. In chapter 12, Abinadi comes back and starts telling them all the consequences of their sins. This is what people who truly love you will do. They won't let you fall into sin and hurt yourself. But verse 9 of chapter 12, they were angry with Abinadi, and they took him and carried him bound before the king. And notice what they say. Noah blind people always use the J word. Look at verse 13. O king, what great evil hast thou done? Do you see how blind they are? What great evil hast thou done? And what great sins have thy people committed that we should be condemned of God? And here's the J word, ready? Judged. You're going to hear that word from Noah blind people all the time. Don't judge me. You're judging me. And they're going to condemn you as an enemy. And you become Abinadi. Because the Noahs of their life are telling them all the things they want to hear so that they feel safe in sin. And so they're going to just point to the Abinadis and say, you're judging. Well, you know the story. They burn Abinadi. Now, fast forward, let me show you how this ends. Go to chapter 19, Mosiah chapter 19. This is where the blinders come off. There's always that moment where the blinders come off and people who've been blind see that they burned Abinadi and that they followed an enemy. So let me paraphrase the story and then I'm going to personify it into my own life. So Gideon recognizes the king really is an enemy, and he's going to slay the king. And that's when they see that the Lamanites have entered their territory. And he says, King Noah says to Gideon, spare me. The Lamanites are here, and they will destroy my people. Now, verse 8, chapter 19, verse 8. This is so true of all the Noahs of our lives. I have never seen anyone experiment with drugs where this hasn't been true of that Noah. Every Noah, anyone ever is blind to think is their friend. This is the reality. Ready? Verse 8. Now the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life. That is the truth about the Noahs of our life. They don't care about you. They are not your friend. They have deceptively made you think that they are but they are not your friend. 
So the the king commands them to run, and when they can't outrun the Lamanites, he commands them to leave the women and children. Now let me personify. Can you just picture the Dunford family? Can you see me running? So my king, my friend has said run. So the whole Dunford family is starting to run. Now I have a seven-year-old and there's no way my seven-year-old outruns the Lamanite. So I pick up my seven-year-old and we're gonna, I'm going to carry Owen on my back. I also have a 10-year-old who's very athletic and wonderful, but there's no way he outruns the Lamanite army. So my 25-year-old son, Spencer, picks up Keegan and he's going to carry the 10-year-old. I also have a 13-year-old. No way he outruns the Lamanite army, but he's too big for anyone to carry. I also have a 14-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. No way they outrun the Lamanite armies. So I'm constantly saying, come on, guys, we got to go faster. And when I see the Lamanite army catching up to us, I turn to my king my friend that I thought was my dear friend, and guess what he tells me to do? He says, leave the women and the children. And because I'm blind, or because I'm addicted, or because I've let this Noah too far into my life, I take Owen off my shoulders. Spencer takes Keegan off of his. And the adult males that can run, and leave the women and the children behind. Now, we will outrun the Lamanite army, because guess what's going to happen when they catch up to the women and the children? Now, can you just picture these men in a clearing, catching their breath, and then the reality of what they just did hits them? Some of them are going to go back. King Noah says, no, no one goes back. And he forbids us to go back. And for the first time, the blinders come off and I see him for who he really is. What did those men do to King Noah in that clearing? Mosiah nineteen twenty. When the blinders finally come off, What did they do to King Noah that they thought was their friend who had said, who they said had done no wrong? They burned him. Now, where's Abinadi? Where's their real friend? Where's the one that came to save them from this very moment? They burned him. Now, do you see the placing of this story in the Book of Mormon now begins to say, we've got to find a solution. For those of you worried about your children growing up in a world with Noah's and Abinadi's that get confused and people think Noah is friend and Abinadi is foe, what can we do? Now, I would suggest to you that the placing of that story in the Book of Mormon is significant. And I would dare say that King Benjamin's address, even though chronologically it comes after King Noah, you check the dates, King Benjamin spoke many years after King Noah's story, but the Book of Mormon places that prophecy, that teaching before, as if to say, 
King Benjamin's address will help prevent Noah blindness. And I'm going to lead you to, I'm going to leave that to you. You figure out what did King Benjamin say that would help your children never become Noah blind? What's the prevention? Now I would suggest that Abinadi has the answers to anyone that you love who is Noah blind. Because did Abinadi get the blinders off of anyone? Did Abinadi's preaching work with anyone? And the answer is yes. Alma takes his blinders off. Alma was Noah blind until Abinadi came. Go back and study Abinadi's words and figure out what is it that Abinadi did. Both Benjamin and Abinadi present Jesus in a different way. One prevents Noah blindness, one, one helps us end it. And then I would suggest one more prophet in the book of Mosiah, Alma the Elder's teachings are for those who had been Noah blind and are trying to heal themselves. If you were ever Noah blind and you're trying to fix what you broke, you need to read what Alma the Elder taught. So there, the Lord has strategically said, here's how to prevent, here's how to cure, and here's how to heal the problem of the wheat and the tares. Now, do you see the beauty of that? The New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants all coming together. So what did Benjamin teach that prevents Noah blindness? What did Abinadi teach that cures Noah blindness? And what did Alma teach that heals Noah blindness? That's the study of the Book of Mormon. And if you're interested, Mike and I deal with all of these back in our Book of Mormon podcast. But let's just go back to section 86 to the therefore. So verse 7, the Lord says, hey, here's the problem. The wheat and the tares are growing together, and you may not know wheat from tares. You may be fooled by a Noah and let a tear into your life thinking that it's wheat. Or you may be fooled by an Abinadi rejecting a, te- a wheat because you think it's a tear. So notice verse 8, he gives us a therefore. Now he's very subtle here because I think the answer is in the Book of Mormon, but I do want to pay attention to what he's saying. Verse 8, therefore, thus saith the Lord unto you, with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers. And then verse 10, I love this verse, your life and the priesthood have remained and must needs remain through you and your lineage. I think the therefore here is the best way to prevent, cure, and heal Noah blindness is in the church and in the home. He points to priesthood and lineage. And I love that, that your life needs to help people not be Noah blind. Parents need to help their children take the blinders off. Somehow, in our homes, we need to make sure our children know, I am not the enemy. I am your friend, even when I rebuke your behavior and discipline you. You don't have a better friend than I am. 
I taught the lesson of Noah and Abinadi once to a group of teenagers, one of whom had recently come out of rehab. And I was a little nervous about how the conversation was going to go. And when we talked about Noah blindness and maybe drugs being a classic example of Noah blindness, and I was nervous how he would respond because it was his mom who sent him to rehab. And he didn't say anything. Throughout the whole class, he didn't say anything, but he was visibly thinking. And then at the very end, when we were talking about cures for Noah blindness and preventions from Noah blindness, he finally raised his hand and he was very emotional. And he said, when my mom sent me to rehab, I hated her. I hated my mom. I didn't think she understood me or cared about me. But now, and he got very emotional. Now I realize I don't have a better friend in the world than my mom. And there was no way I was going to say anything after that because that was absolutely beautifully stated. We have to help our children understand that no one cares about them. No one is a better friend than prophets, seers, and revelators, and parents, priesthood, and lineage. The Lord hints at the solution here. The answer to Noah blindness is priesthood and home. Covenants, temples, sacraments will help us prevent Noah blindness and home We have to pass that on. I love that the Lord says, this must needs remain through you and your lineage. We have to pass on the legacy that no one cares more than mom and dad. Even when we discipline you, we are not the enemy. Don't burn us and run to Noah. That's section 86. I just think... The placing of that in 86 marries the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants all into one beautiful scripture. That's really good application, Bryce. Historically, this revelation was put at the front of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the big reason why is because to Joseph and his contemporaries, this revelation was all about priesthood. Now, it's later in the Doctrine and Covenants, we're trying to put everything in there chronologically, But early, it was right at the front end. And even, like I said, even though it isn't understood as a revelation on priesthood in our day, it was in his day. This revelation affirms that the apostasy took place after the death of the apostles and the meridian of time, and that the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is centered on the descendants of Abraham. That's what's happening in verse 8 and 9 and 10, is that the descendants of Abraham are the heirs or the lawful heirs according to the flesh. Now, Joseph, you know, we don't know if this revelation preceded or followed his inspired translation of the Bible that he made regarding the parable of the wheat and the tares. According to Robert J. Matthews, and he's kind of like the Joseph Smith translation expert, he basically says that on a third editing of the manuscript, 
he appended a note to the parable that the wheat was to be gathered into the barn before the tares were to be bound and burned, and that that understanding probably came, according to Robert J. Matthews, as he received this revelation. And so this revelation is like Bryce just said, this is tying the New Testament church to the Latter-day church using this parable as a vehicle or a message to talk about authority. And if you go to the Pearl Gate Price, if you go to the book of Abraham, this is where God is speaking to Abraham. And he says in verse 8 of chapter 2, my name is Jehovah, and I know the end from the beginning. And then in verse 9, he says, I will make of thee a great nation and bless thee above measure and make thy name great among all nations. But then there's, uh, there's the invitation. Verse 10, I will bless them, meaning the descendants of Abraham, through thy name. For as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name and shall be accounted thy seed. So one way to be the seed of a- the literal seed of Abraham is to join the gospel, is to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, yeah. regardless of who your blood lineage is, he makes it clear that as many as receive this gospel shall be accounted thy seed. So there's one way to be the seed of Abraham. And that that really is a big message of Paul because Paul was a messenger or an apostle to the Gentiles, and a lot of them were asking these kinds of questions, like, how do I fit into this community of saints? And so if you read Galatians 3, that's essentially what he's saying, is that if you're baptized into Jesus, you you take his name upon you, you become his seed. And then at the end of verse 10, it says that these people will rise up and bless thee as their father. But if you do a really careful reading of verse 9, the previous verse— of Abraham too. It says, I will make thy name great among all nations, and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee. And in their hands, they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. The hand is a symbol for power, and they'll have power as his seed. And they are, according to section 86, literal descendants of Abraham. And the invitation is, is that if they meaning us, if we make God's name great, he will make our family great. And that invitation is in Abraham 1, verse 18. He says, the Lord speaking to Abraham, I will lead thee by my hand. I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father, and my power shall be over thee. As it was with Noah, so it shall be with thee. But through thy ministry, my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am thy God. And so the invitation seems to be to Abraham, if you make my name known, then I will make your family great. And I think to me, I think that's what's happening in this section where we were talking about the issues of seeing wheat and tares that Bryce so eloquently illustrated with the story from Noah. We live in a day where we can't see so many things are amiss, as it were. But as we make his name known and as we testify of truth and try to live it, we are the heirs of Abraham. And there's a lot that's said about this, especially in the 19th century. There's a great book by a fellow by the name of Vern Swanson. The book's called Dynasty of the Holy Grail, Mormonism, Sacred Bloodline. 
The idea that he shares in this book is that the early leaders of the 19th century movement of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are descendants of the ancient 12 apostles. This is what they taught. Lorenzo Snow one time said this. He said, there are men in this congregation who are descendants of the ancient 12 apostles. And then he goes on and ties the lineage of the early 12 to the early leadership of the church. And Heber C. Kimball said, do you actually know Joseph Smith? No. Do you know Brother Brigham? No. Do you know Brother Heber? No, you do not. Do you know the 12? You do not. For if you did, you would begin to know God and learn that these men who are chosen to direct and counsel you are near kindred to God and Jesus Christ. For the keys, power, and authority of the kingdom of God are in that lineage. So he ties their literal lineage to the early leadership of the church. And so from that perspective, this idea of verse 9 being lawful heirs according to the flesh, they took this literally. Certainly in the Old Testament, there's this big contention that happens when they come and rebuild the second temple. And the question is, who are the real priests? And it comes down to, if you can verify your lineage. Now, there's this tension in the church of this idea of Israel is this elect group of people, but God loves all of his children. And those two ideas cause tension. And I think Galatians 3 and Abraham kind of relax that tension and say, no, if I follow the Savior, if I take upon me his name, I'm a lawful heir. And so that's kind of how I read these passages. But I see the early church looking at verse 9 and seeing, no, we are the heirs of the early meridian of time church. But I think if you look in verse 10, therefore your life and the priesthood have remained and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things. The Lord is speaking to these individuals that this authority is in them and it was in their forefathers and that today that's the challenge for us, that we carry the torch. And that as we do this, the restoration will be ongoing. Now, section 87, notice the date. It's Christmas, 1832. <laughs> Merry Christmas. We're going to talk about war. But this isn't the only time the Lord's talked about this, is it, no. Christ? Let's go back through the Doctrine and Covenants and point out how many times the Lord has prophesied of civil war. Go all the way back to section 38, verse 29. The Lord said, Ye hear of wars in far countries. And you say that there will soon be great wars in far countries, but you know not the hearts of men in your own land. See, that's all the way back to section 38. He's already hinting at coming war in our own land. Then we go to section 42, the law of the church, verse 64. And even now, let him that goeth to the east teach them that shall be converted to flee to the west. So any missionaries that go back to the East, tell everyone you convert to flee to the West, and this in consequence of that which is coming on the earth and of secret combinations. By the way, secret combinations is I'm going to convert your life into property, which that is slavery. That's the very essence of slavery. And then we've got one more. So this will be the third time the Lord hints at civil war long before giving the Christmas Day prophecy, which is now section 87. So section 45, verse 63. Ye hear of wars in foreign lands, 
But behold, I say unto you, they are nigh even at your doors. And not many years hence ye shall hear of wars in your own lands. It's the same thing, right? Get out of the east. Go to the west. Yep, because war's coming. I just wanted to point out how many times the Lord has prophesied of civil war. Yep. Excellent. So sometimes there is criticism of the prophet regarding this section because it was not published until after the Civil War. It is important that we do acknowledge that it wasn't canonized until 1876, but it certainly was published before the Civil War. This revelation was published in the Pearl of Great Price in 1851. And also it was given to many of the elders. There were at least eight people that we know had copies. W.W. Phelps had a copy, Thomas Bullock, Willard Richards, and Edward Partridge were among them. And Orson Pratt was the most vocal of the individuals who spoke of this prophecy. And I think in all things, when it comes to church history, there are always going to be criticisms. I think it's important, if you're going to read those, to also read the responses. Like in a courtroom setting, you're not just going to hear, if you're on the jury, you're not just going to hear the case that the prosecution has. There's a prosecution but there's also a defense. It's good to look at all sides and hear them. Now, Orson Pratt said, when I was younger, I traveled extensively in the United States and the Canadas preaching the restored gospel. I had a manuscript copy of the Revelation, which I carried in my pocket, and I was in the habit of reading it to the people among whom I traveled and preached. And so Orson Pratt was pretty vocal with what he knew of this revelation of the prophecy of war. But you can imagine when the secession threats cooled down after 1832, people asked him, well, what do you have to say to that? And he said, I knew the prophecy was true for the Lord had spoken to me and had given me revelation. So he had had a personal experience with this. But year after year passed away without war. And now and then some of the acquaintances that I formerly made would say to me, well, Orson, what is going to become of that prediction? It's never going to be fulfilled. And Orson's response was, well, wait, the Lord has set his time. Now, it is interesting historically that there was a newspaper that actually published this. When war broke out in April of 1861, 28 years after this prophecy, the Philadelphia Sunday Mercury newspaper carried an article entitled A Mormon Prophecy. And they write, we have in our possession a pamphlet published at Liverpool in 1851 referring to the Civil War prophecy. In view of our present troubles, this prediction seems to be in progress of fulfillment, whether Joe Smith was a humbug or not. The article reprinted the entire prophecy and then noted how events were being fulfilled and concluded regarding Joseph Smith with a question. And the question was this, have we not had a prophet among us? So it was published in 1851 in Liverpool. There were individuals who actually had copies of this, even though it wasn't canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. And so, yeah, there were criticisms and that there were also responses. And so it is important that we do acknowledge that it wasn't canonized until 1876, but it certainly was published. And I think it's good to note some of the things that Joseph Smith was accurate with. First, he predicted that war would occur. It wasn't a for sure thing in 1832 that war would take place. Second, he prophesied that South Carolina would take the initiative, and that happened. April 12, 1861, 
the Confederate forces laid siege to Fort Sumter. This was the beginning of the Civil War. The third thing this section talks about is that death would be brought to many. And as it turned out, that happened to be the case. In the show notes, we post a bunch of stuff citing these statistics on the death toll, not only of the Civil War, but other wars since then, because it talks about death coming to many souls in this revelation. And there's a really good book out there called The Study of War by Quincy Wright. He gets into the complexities of war, and Quincy Wright asserts that it has intensified recently. Now, there have been 15 general wars involving all or nearly all of the great powers since 1600, four in the 17th century, seven in the 18th, and two in the 19th and 20th centuries. And he writes, while the average duration of wars has not varied greatly, tending, if anything, to decline from over to under about four years, the average number of battles in war has tended to increase from one or two in the 16th century to 10 times those figures at present. And he he writes, these phenomena are all evidence of the increasing intensity of war as as modern civilization has progressed. And so from his perspective, and it's complicated, I mean, this book is massive, I find that interesting. You know, in the appendix of his book, he makes this statement. And if you look, verse two, that's happened. Like we're living in a time where war has been poured out. Now, what have we not lived to see? If you look at the end of verse six, we have not seen the consumption decree that has made a full end of all nations. And that's kind of a tough thing to read. Now, Brigham Young put it this way when he said, we don't want this to happen. This isn't something we want. We don't want destruction. And so during the Civil War, he said, war is raging in our nation, and this is the providence of God. And it was told us years ago by the prophet Joseph. And what we are now coming to was foreseen by him, and no power can hinder it. Can the inhabitants of our once beautiful, delightful, and happy country avert the horrors and evils that are now upon them? Yes, by turning from their wickedness and calling upon the Lord. And then later, he actually expresses concern for the suffering. Brigham says, it's distressing to see the condition our nation is in, and I cannot help it. But who can? The people can, by turning to God and ceasing to do wickedly, ceasing to persecute the honest and the truth lover. If they had done that 30 years ago, it would have been better for them today. When we appealed to the government of our nation for justice, the answer was, and he's referring to Missouri, The answer was, your cause is just, but we have no power. Did not Joseph Smith tell them in Washington and in Philadelphia that the time would come when their state rights would be trampled upon? Joseph said many and many a time to us, never be anxious for the Lord to pour out his judgments upon the nation. Many of you will see the distress and evils poured out upon this nation till you will weep like children. Many of us have felt to do so already, and it seems to be coming upon us more and more. It seems as though the fangs of destruction were piercing the very vitals of the nation. And so Brigham Young does say, even though we knew this was coming, or even though Joseph Smith prophesied it, this isn't something to applaud. This is something to weep over. And I can only imagine Joseph and his mindset as he saw these things. So quick history in 1832. In the fall and winter of 1832, there was a major controversy going on in Washington known as the nullification crisis. And it basically grew out of these geographic tensions that were going on between the North and South before the Civil War. 
The Civil War really starts in 1861, so we're about 30 years ahead of that. But in 1832, there was a lot of tension because the South felt threatened by the North, and specifically the state of South Carolina. It was the center of unrest generated by a controversy. The Southerners, particularly those in South Carolina, they felt oppressed and disadvantaged by this tariff that was put on in 1828, the so-called tariff of abominations, as it's been historically termed. This tariff imposed duties on foreign manufactured goods, which favored the North, which was mainly industrial, while at the same time, this tariff worked against the interests of the South. And in addition to this economic issue, the South was becoming really wary of the anti-slavery movements going on in the North. And so in order to protect themselves from these threats, they passed what they called the Ordinance of Nullification. Historically, this was led by John C. Calhoun. And essentially, this Ordinance of Nullification claimed some of these main philosophies. The first thing they said was that sovereignty resided in the states. And because of that, because the states were sovereign, the states were the ones that created the federal government. So their idea was, you, the feds, can't tell us what to do. We made you. Our states coming together made the federal government what it is and have given you some authority only in as much as we allow it. And so the next thing that the Ordinance of Nullification stated was that that a state could decide if the federal law was constitutional or not. And if it wasn't, then the federal law could be declared null and void by the state. Essentially, what they're saying is, you're not going to tell us what to do. Sometimes people say that the Civil War was a war over states' rights. And while I will acknowledge that, I would encourage you to read Clint Smith's book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. This book gets into the primary source material. And all I can say is, The war was about slavery. That was the issue. There were billions of dollars at stake, and the South was making a ton of money, and they knew that if slavery was taken away from them, that it would cripple their economy, and so they were willing to go to war over slavery. Now, the fix is going to come after the revelation. After the revelation in 1832, this is Christmas, but in the next month, Henry Clay in 1833 is going to draft a document, and historians are going to call it the Olive Branch and the Sword Compromise. And essentially what this 1833 compromise was is it handed the sword to President Jackson, and it said to President Jackson, you have the authority to make sure that the states follow federal law and you can enforce it with the sword. You can send troops down and make them do this. So that's the sword part of the compromise. But the olive branch relaxed the tariffs that the South was worried about. And so the South relaxed and they backed away. And we kind of had this time where we could take a breath. But what Joseph sees in 1832 on Christmas Day is this image and he, and he writes it out that wars are going to come to pass. He says it's going to start in South Carolina, verse 1, and it will terminate in the death and misery of many souls, verse 2. The time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations, beginning at this place, meaning South Carolina. And then he gets even further where he says in verse 3 that the South is going to call on Great Britain. 
And then later it says in verse 3 that they, meaning Great Britain, will call upon other nations to defend them, Great Britain, against other nations. And then war will be poured out upon all nations. Now, to me, my interpretation, one interpretation of verse 3 is that this is a prophecy of multiple wars. And one of them is the idea that Great Britain is going to call on other nations to defend themselves. And we see this, especially in World War I, but we see in the Great World Wars in the 20th century, war poured out upon all nations. We see Great Britain as a player in both of these wars, and they call upon specifically America to come and help them to defend themselves in these European wars. So Bryce, how do you interpret verse 3? Well, I take it to verse 4, because I think we're seeing this crescendo. We see this just magnification that, that what started in the Civil War, what started in the United States at South Carolina, is a pattern of what's just going to go over and spread over this whole world. So we see World War One, and we see World War Two, and we see nations calling upon nations, and we see war poured out upon all nations. But then notice verse 4, the Lord shifts. I would dare say that we draw a line after verse 3, We're done talking about civil war. I think what the Lord's doing here is describing what type of wars we're going to face in our day. The war that began with the rebellion in South Carolina is a type of the wars that we're going to see throughout the rest of time and into the millennium. Now, remember back in the old days, war was for conquest, Alexander the Great went out and conquered. The Roman Empire went out and conquered. War was for conquering and growing your kingdom. It was for conquest. But the Lord seems to say, not anymore. In our day, things have changed. Notice in verse 4, the Lord says, It shall come to pass after many days, slaves shall rise up against their masters. And then in verse 5, that Another group shall be marshaled together and will be exceedingly angry. So slaves who are oppressed will rise up against their oppressors, and we will fight wars of anger. I think what the Lord is saying is prepare yourselves for the wars of the latter days, wars of rebellion instead of wars of conquest. It is the reality of our day that we dwell among wars of the oppressed rising up against the oppressors. So we began to see the American Revolution was the oppressed rising up against the oppressors, the French Revolution, the Bolshevik in Russia rising up against the Tsar, really close to home. We see a growing number of people in America who are rising up in rebellion against America. And we also see it in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There are those who are rising up against the church because they see the church as oppressing them, and they rise up in rebellion against it. This is the nature of our day, wars of the heart. Bryce, I want to interject here. This is Joseph L. Worthlin, and he's saying this in 1958. So to give you some context, this is, you know, after World War II, he says, in many cases, I'm sure we all think that this prophecy about slaves rising up has to do with slaves in the southern states. But I believe that it was intended that this referred to slaves all over the world. And I think of those particularly in the land of Russia. Now, remember, 1958, what was going on in Russia? 
in other countries where they have been taken over by that great nation and where the people are actually the slaves of those individuals who guide and direct the affairs of Russia and China, and where the right and the privilege to worship God and to come to a knowledge that Jesus Christ is his son is denied to them. And so that's another way to read this, that maybe this is about freedom, and maybe this is more and bigger than this small conflict happening in this little small power. I mean, in 1832, the United States is not a big deal, but maybe this is more of a global thing about freedom. Yeah. Freedom and oppression and anger, and those are the forces behind war in our day. And then verse 6, with sword and by bloodshed, the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn. And it causes famine and plagues and earthquakes, and the, earth, the heavens are shaking because of what's going on on earth. In other words, here's the environment in which we live. Now, all you have to do is watch the news or go to social media, and you can say, yep, that's our day. Wars of rebellion, wars of freedom, wars of the oppressed rising up against what they see are their oppressors and striking back against them, and their hearts are filled with anger, and we're fighting against each other. Now, before we get to verse 8, which is kind of the Lord's whole point here, is war is going to be poured out, we're going to fight these wars of the heart, I've got to again go to what I think is the Lord's full version. This is just a brief summary. Again, if the Book of Mormon was written for our day, then the very problems we face are addressed in the Book of Mormon. And if we're growing up, so section 86 suggested we're growing up where we can't tell the difference between a Noah and an Abinadi, then that should be addressed in the Book of Mormon prominently. And now section 87, if we're going to deal with wars of rebellion and wars of the heart, then that needs to be addressed prominently in the Book of Mormon. And it is. I would suggest that the pattern of the Lord's coming in the Book of Mormon is like the Lord's coming the second time. And there's a whole lot of connections the coming of Christ to the Americas is very much like the coming of Christ the second time to all the world. Therefore, the days before the coming of Christ in the Americas are like the days before the coming of Christ the second time. I would suggest to you we live in the days of Helaman. The book of Helaman was written as a description of the days before the second coming, because they are the days before his first coming. The problems they faced in Helaman are the problems we will face before the second coming. The answers and the solutions are our answers and solutions. So go back to the book of Helaman, guess what you find in chapter 1 and again in chapter 4, something that never happened in the book of Alma, never happened under Captain Moroni. The Lamanites make it all the way to Zarahemla. Now, do you see the symbolism? The war goes all the way to the heart of the Nephites. Wars of the heart. Now, here's how the Book of Mormon handles that. So, as soon chapter 4, Helaman chapter 4, when the Lamanites come all the way and capture Zarahemla, Moroniah, who is Captain Moroni's son, tries to conquer the land again. 
and he can't because the people aren't being righteous. The best he can do is to conquer half. He gets back half of the land that the Lamanites take, and they're content to stop there because they just don't think they're going to ever get any more back. And that's when Nephi takes over and says, we'll do the job. And Nephi goes out in chapter 5 and starts preaching, first in Zarahemla, where the Lamanite army lived, and he baptizes 8,000 Lamanites. 8,000. There's a story there. Now, we're not told that story, but there's a huge story there. How does Nephi convert the 8,000 Lamanites in Zarahemla? So then he heads back down to the land of Nephi, which is where the Lamanites dwell, and the whole story about the prison and the darkness that comes and encircles them. There's such a great story there about missionary work and conversion. The ones that were in the prison are converted. And then they go out and convert the rest of the nation. Now go to the end of chapter 5. I absolutely love chapter 5 as a pattern of our day. Because at the end of chapter 5, the 300 people that were in the prison and were converted, they're the ones that go out and preach to the Lamanite nation. Verse 51, as many as were convinced did lay down their weapons of war and also their hatred and the tradition of their fathers. And it came to pass that they did yield up unto the Nephites the lands of their possession. Do you see what the Lord's trying to say about wars of the heart? What Moroniah could not do with the sword, Nephi and Lehi did with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to the wars of heart that occur in our day is the gospel and love of Jesus Christ. There is no other solution. Think about how the gospel deals with racism. Think about all the things that we've been fighting for anywhere on this planet for the last century. The greatest force for peace on this earth is found in the truths of the gospel. And so I think what section 87 is saying is you are going to grow up in an environment where there are constant wars of the heart and oppressed are rising up against oppressors and there's anger and sword and fighting. And the only solution, as taught in the Book of Mormon, the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will bring peace to families, peace to communities, peace to our world. But Moroniah could not do with the sword. Nephi and Lehi did with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lamanites were converted and gave up the lands. And so we come back to section 87, verse 8. Wherefore, because you live amongst wars of the heart, because people are angry and they feel oppressed and they're fighting back against the people they claim oppressed them, Stand ye in holy places. Yep. Standing in holy places is so important. In fact, Scott Esplin, he's done some research on this revelation, how it's been used. And since the Civil War and since the 19th century, the emphasis seems to be more upon verse 8, standing in holy places. In fact, Marion G. Romney said, the Lord's purpose in revealing these things is not to condemn mankind but to save them. And then Scott Esplin cites Harold B. Lee and Marvin J. Ashen, Neil A. Maxwell, Dallin H. Oaks, Gordon B. Hinckley, and Thomas S. Monson, 
all, when they speak of this revelation, the emphasis is in verse 8. Yeah. We've got to realize that the solution to all of this is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So stand in places where you can be taught that gospel and don't leave the covenants. If you do, you're leaving the very solution to the problems that are vexing all of us. The answer is in the gospel. Stand in holy places. Now, Isaiah points to three holy places in the scriptures. He refers to the temple, the tabernacle, as a holy place. And so we go to the temple as a holy place and receive covenants. Then number two is he kind of refers to the church house, the meeting houses, the gathering places of the saints. And we would say those are our chapels. And chapels are a sacred place. But then he points to the home, that in the latter days, the home would be a sacred place. Let our homes, our Sunday meetings, our temple worship be places where we learn and commit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that right there is the antidote to everything that's wrong with our society. So stand in holy places and be not moved. And I would add one more thing. There's one thing the Lord often says in so many other verses, fear not, stand in holy places and don't be afraid. Stand in those covenants, keep your family in those covenants, and be not moved, and everything's going to be okay. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover section 88. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.